to be or not to be. That is the question. This single line than which there is in all of dramatic literature, none more famous, powerful, succinct, nor arresting, never fails to stop me in my tracks. No sooner do I encounter it than I'm dazed. It stuns me. It disarms me. I hear it and can proceed no further. No matter how many times I've read it, heard it spoken, or watched it performed live on stage, it persists in reducing me to silence and rendering me limp. This single line to which Shakespeare's greatest character, Hamlet, gave voice and, through his voice, gave life some four centuries ago, could be picked apart, discussed, and debated from now till the end of time. It could undergo the kind of ceaseless study and exhaustive analysis of which only the weightiest questions that we face in this life. Questions like, why am I here? What is happiness? Why do we suffer? Does God exist? Is there Life after death are truly deserving. Indeed, there are many venerable scholars, their balding heads buried in dusty old books and their wearied eyes squinting 
at arcane manuscripts in dimly lit rooms, who have analyzed and studied this question in precisely that way. There are many serious thinkers who have committed not only their professional careers, but no small part of their personal lives and their hours of leisure to the pursuit and attainment of its evasive answer. To be or not to be. As it happens, in their pursuit of an answer to this daunting question, the scholars are not alone. It attracts and ultimately consumes us all. That's right. We, the less educated but equally curious mass of humanity, have sought its answer no less energetically than have the academics. Less systematically granted and without the helpful resources with which a traveler on academia's gilded road might illuminate his path. We too are fully committed to unveiling an answer to this haunting question. A question by which, no matter the station into which you were born, nor the advantages that you've inherited, nor the degree that you've obtained. All of us are, at one time or another, plagued. That's something on which we might linger for a moment. Is it not amazing that one simple line, strung together by brisk monosyllables, written at the dawn of the 17th century, can beguile a man, a country, an entire species for the whole of his natural life. He could turn it over in his mind from his adolescence till his death. 
without ever growing weary of the question, nor ever achieving complete clarity on how he should answer it, and having finally answered it, what going forward he ought to do. Hello, my friend, and welcome to this episode of Numa. I am forever and always your faithful host, Daniel Finneran. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited for today's meditation. I hope that you are as well. Before we dive into it though, let me take this opportunity to invite you to subscribe to this channel on which, as you probably know by now, I'm always posting new and original content, poetry, philosophy, mindfulness, wellness, and sleep. Everything related to thinking more deeply, living more fully, and improving your life is to be found right here. If you'd be so kind, please share it with friends. Like this episode and if you're listening on a podcast streaming service, give it a five-star rating. You can also visit my website, numameditations.com to which there will be a link in the show notes below. There, for free, you can enter your email address and receive in return my new weekly newsletter. The newsletter is a little dose of thoughtfulness and wellness with which to begin your week. You can, for this episode, just relax, steady your breathing and focus on the subject about which we'll be talking for the next half hour or so. If you need help pacing your breathing, 
you can breathe in for a count of two seconds and breathe out for a count of four seconds. Beyond that, I just want you to relax and listen. In six, penetratingly sharp words, of which the first half of a line quotable by every English speaker of a certain age is elegantly composed. William Shakespeare begins what is, in my opinion, the most profound meditation on life's biggest question. To be or not to be. Fear not. This episode is not going to be a professorial exegesis of Shakespeare's longest and greatest play, Hamlet. The tragic tale of the Prince of Denmark's fatal indecisiveness. Perhaps in the future, if that, a deeper, critical analysis of the work is something in which you'd be interested we can examine the play more fully and discuss all its existential implications and, even better, all its poetic splendor. Today, we're going to read and think about the play's most famous soliloquy, a speech that a character delivers at once to the audience and to himself. The to be or not to be soliloquy with which act three commences. That to be or not to be is, as Hamlet assures us, the question is not to be doubted. But what exactly does that mean? To be what? Not to be? What? Put in other terms, the question is whether or not one should gird himself, grit his teeth, bear down and 
carry on with living to be or in an effort to relieve himself of the ineluctable suffering and constant hardship to which flesh is heir. Seek an end to his life. To be is to live. Not to be is to die. And the one who poses the question is the one who can, by his own unencumbered choice and action, make the decision. Simple, right? That, in brief, is the central question around which Hamlet's disquietude and, by extension, the whole plot of the tragedy revolves. Should Hamlet carry on living despite his misfortune and the terrible difficulty of his life? Or should he seek his life's end and with it all its concomitant hardships? Having stated the question, Hamlet weighs two possible responses. He ponders if it isn't nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or adopting a more active and defiant stance to take arms against a sea of troubles and, by opposing, end them. He could either quietly and passively endure the salvo of slings and arrows unleashed upon him by cruel fate, or take up arms and resist his unhappy lot. Next, the famous die sleep passage of which I'll perform a quick reading. To die, to sleep, no more. And by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. To die, 
to sleep, to sleep perchance to dream, aye, there's the rub, for in that sleep of death what dreams may come. When we have shuffled off this mortal coil, must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. The vital question here is, what exactly follows death? By what dreams if any, is this vaunted sleep of death going to be occupied? Perhaps the dreams are pleasant and sweet, without any risk of their ever becoming cloying. Perhaps they are intolerably nightmarish. Perhaps, worse still, they are nothing. Perhaps there are no dreams at all. Must give us pause. Here we arrive at the reason for Hamlet's indecision. He knows not what follows death. The prospect of a long life, of which, tragically, neither he nor anyone in his immediate orbit will enjoy the experience, is, by any measure, a total calamity so long as it subjects a man to unabated suffering and the continuance of emotional, physical, and psychological pain. Hamlet proceeds to make a rather too convincing argument for the not to be position. Who, he asks, would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of disprised love, the law's delay? insolence of office and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes, when he himself might his quietus make with a bare bodkin. Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns puzzles the will. 
and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. What type of weird masochistic person, he asks, would be crazy enough to endure all these horrible things? Who would be so self-loathing as to choose this strange phenomenon called life? And, having thus chosen, bear all the innumerable afflictions by which it's attended. Who would bear the whips and scorns of time? Connect this to your own life. Who would choose to bear, say, the aging process? The aching of your joints? The slowing of your metabolism? The graying of your hair? The loss of youthful vigor and strength? The dulling of your mental acuity, the loss of a father or a mother, or the elderly family members whom you love. You are, in truth, unworthy or undeserving of these and many other things. The oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the law's delay, etc. And yet, you suffer them nonetheless. Why? What prevents you from deciding, once and for all, not to be? What stops you from taking that bare bodkin, that insignificant little instrument of, depending on the motivations of its user, either dressmaking or death, and making your quietus complete? It's the dread of something after death. Ah, now that's the real rub. It's that haunting fear, impossible to articulate, but universally felt of what awaits us after death. That, in the final assessment, is the undiscovered country, the next life from whose shadowy born no traveler returns. We don't know, nor can we ever hope to know, the landscape of this mysterious foreign world for which we're 
blindly destined. No one can return to us an accurate survey of its contours. No one can report back to us a reliable description of its climate. It is to us undiscovered. That's not to say, however, that it's undiscoverable. Time will make it so. Until then, we're inclined rather to bear those ills we have, to suffer the hardships that we've been allotted, no matter how unpleasant they may be, than to go off and entangle ourselves in other ills that might be worse. A known evil is, in this case, far better, or at least more desirable, than an unknown one. What do you think? If forced to choose, which would you prefer? Hamlet ends with the following chilling peroration. Thus, Given the somewhat unheroic fact that we'd rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of, it's clear that conscience doth make cowards of us all. And having been conquered by our own cowardice, it's clear that the native hue of resolution is sicklied over with the pale cast of thought and enterprises of great pith and moment with this regard their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. We are, at last, cowed into inaction. We are cowed to be. We choose life, in Hamlet's opinion, not for its intrinsic value, 
nor for a due regard to the divine mandate by which acts of self-violence are not only unfavorably judged, but outright damned. But because we are too afraid and irresolute to choose otherwise. For what it's worth, I think it is still inestimably better to be. And here on Numa, we shall continue to think thoughts and to cultivate habits that make it so, that make life worth living. But still, we wrestle and shall forever wrestle with this imperishable question. To be or not to be. Thank you so much for joining me today. If by chance you found this episode helpful, original, and stimulating, do consider liking it and sharing it with a couple of friends. Encourage them to join you in subscribing to this channel and signing up for my newsletter, soon to be released on numameditations.com to which I will provide a link in the show notes below. You can also visit my sister channel, Finnerin's Wake, on which I host for long-form conversations a wide array of fascinating thinkers. Before we part, I leave you with one final thought over which you might ponder. William Hazlitt, speaking to the universality of Shakespeare's indecisive Danish prince, said that, in truth, it is we who are Hamlet. It is we who are Hamlet. All of us are to a larger extent than we realize. Hamlet, the indecisive man. Let us make of that recognition what we will. Until next time, farewell from Numa. <laughs>